What should the story of wine be all about? The flavours of the wines, of course. If we know what they're like, that is. Some of the flavours are brand new. Some are as old as time. Some we can experience tonight. Some haven't been experienced for a thousand years. But they're all relevant to our story. From the beginning of wine time to now, flavours have come, flavours have gone, some flavours have come again, and they're all part of this story. And the bottle, the decanter, the glass, these are all part of wine's history. Well, to begin with, they didn't exist. When wine began, glass didn't exist. So the invention of glass, the improvements made in glass, both as an artistic delight and as a reliable receptacle, these are crucial to our story. The bottle, which nowadays seems so integral a part of wine, is really quite recent. Hollow glass vessels may have been crafted as long ago as 1500 BC, but bottles with necks and with corks to put in them only really became commonplace in the 17th century. They are both important to our story. Since the 17th century, the bottle, stoppered with its cork, has almost been the visual definition of wine along with its label, of course. But labels didn't really figure until the 1860s, since when they rapidly became the most important way to declare what was in the bottle. They also became the most effective method of advertising and marketing, and this remains so to this day. The label is as important a part of our story as the flavour of the wine is. And if the flavour the bottle and the label are so important? What about more rarefied matters? The myths of wine, the legends of wine, the rituals of wine, the importance of wine in religious life, in political life, in trade. All of these are exciting parts of the story, and I talk about them all. I haven't even mentioned the vineyards, and with them the magic and the mystique of foreign lands and intriguing seductive cultures whose images inhabit the dreams of so many wine lovers, especially those living in the cold northern climes whose minds drift longingly towards the warm south in their drab winter months. The wines from these vineyards used to come from a mere handful of countries, mostly Western European. Not anymore. At the end of the 20th century, a worldwide wine revolution was led by the so-called New World producers. Some, like California and Australia, had been growing grapes and making wine since the early 19th century. Some, like South America and South Africa, had been at it for even longer, and some, like New Zealand's South Island, were starting from scratch. But they threw themselves into this crazy activity of trying to make wines whose whole objective was to give pleasure to the wine drinker. Well, haven't wine producers always done that? No, they haven't sometimes because they didn't care to, but just as often because they didn't know how. The new world taught the old world how. 
and then the old world returned the compliment by slowly revealing the secrets that made their best wines the best wines in the world. These are wonderful stories, and I tell them all right up to what is happening today. And what is happening today is very challenging. Climate change is shoving aside the old certainties of centuries. Wineries are being swept away by fire. Whole wine regions are being crippled by frost and hail, drought and flood. These stories must be told, but also the stories of hope, of how climate change is encouraging people to grow vines in more and more extreme and unlikely places, further north, further south, higher, lower, extreme parts of China, the chilly slopes of northern Japan, Tasmania in Australia, Patagonia in South America, states like Virginia and New York in the USA, they're all producing wines, where the old-timers said, it wasn't possible. And whole countries who never ever took their own puny efforts seriously are now triumphantly proving that they can make wines that range from the interesting to the outstanding. The low countries and Scandinavia in Europe, Canada in the Americas, and perhaps most of all, England, in all its maritime glory, wedged between the Atlantic and the North Sea. All of these stories make up the thrilling history of wine. And in between, there are fascinating oddball stories of France's First World War blood vintages, of Nazi wine, of the birth of Liebfraumilch and Matthäus Rosie and Gallo's hearty Burgundy. These are all important. Beaujolais Nouveau is important. White Zinfandel is important. Synthetic corks and screw caps and bag-in-box are as important to many wine drinkers as the 1855 classification of Bordeaux, or the effect on wine's character of uber-critic Robert Parker and uber-consultant Michel Roland, or the births of Burgundy and Tokai, Rioja, Vintage Port, Sherry and Champagne. But I tell the story of them all. If I count up the number of stories going from 6,000 BC and the probable birth of a wine culture in ancient Georgia through the fact and the fiction of Persia, Egypt, Greece and Rome, and then on along the fascinating cluttered trail right up to the trends and tribulations of now, I tell, well... Over a hundred stories, and woven into these tales are probably a hundred more, and I use endless illustrations to add colour and excitement to the stories, and to make your mouths water, and your eyes mist over with imagining, and your hand reach for the bottle, or the can, or the laminated pouch of wine. These stories are told to make wine more alive, to bring wine's wonders closer to you, and also to make you think, to ask you to ponder wine's past, where it comes from, wine's present, where it is now, and wine's future, where it is going. Wine's past, 
was both good and bad. Wine's present is more good than bad. What will wine's future be?